This is what I call the good to great grid, where you sit down and you get on paper, you define the difference between good and great in that business performance metric. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. So glad that you're with us. I am really, truly excited, delighted for our guest today. Uh, Scott is, well, you're going to you're gonna get to know him from the conversation. He's a popular keynote speaker, trainer. He's an award-winning author. Uh, but the reason that I have Scott on specifically today is because his newest book, and it's, in, it's been an Amazon number one bestseller, uh, has such an important message and is so practical and helpful for many of you that are listening today. And I don't know of anything else like it. And I, I was telling Scott before the show, and I truly mean this, there are very few books I wish I might have written. And this is one of them. It's that good. So we'll get into it. And I'm just going to tease you with that for a second before I tell you the name of the book. But Scott's a former Procter & Gamble senior executive, successfully ran several of the company's largest multi-billion dollar businesses. He's on faculty at the Indiana University's Kelly School of Business for Executive Education. He's been a CEO thought leader uh, by the Chief Executives Guild, a top 50 leadership innovator by Inc.com. Uh, had an Inc.com column with 2 million monthly readers. So Scott knows what he's talking about. And uh, we're going to cut off the accolades there, Scott, or we wouldn't have any time for content. Because we got to get to the content, the name of this book is Leading from the Middle, a playbook for managers to influence up down and across the organization. So excited to welcome Scott Motz. Thank you for being on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you so much, David. That guy you described up front, I can't wait to meet him. He sounds like an interesting cat. So <laughs> I know. I feel, that, I, I feel that way too when, uh, when you get bios read. And, uh, you know, wow, that, is that me? No, that's yeah. some, I, some reality there. But, yeah, I appreciate you know, one, that. One of the things that, you know, all joking aside, one of the things that makes this book and some of what you're going to share today so valuable, it's very research-based. You did your homework. This isn't just fly-by-night opinion of, oh, I, you know, I led it from the middle once and, you know, and here's my thoughts. So there's so much that went into this. But before we dive in, Scott, I got to ask you, um, I ask every guest on our show this question. If you can reflect back and tell us about your first memory of yourself as a leader. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think uh, my, my very first memory, it goes all the way back to the first time that I managed people. And uh, at Procter & Gamble, they give you the opportunity, David, fairly early in your career, you know, if you're not a bumbling idiot, before too long, you get a chance to manage others. And I very much remember struggling in that first moment when I realized, okay, leadership isn't just about me. This is about working through the eyes of others and helping them become the best versions of themselves. And I remember, you know, some of my first moments as a leader, not being very great moments as a leader, David, as I, as I tried to figure out what it really took to motivate other individuals in a way that was going to be, um, you know, sustainable, not just short term. That, that's so honestly, my first memory is one of me learning the tough lesson of managing others. Uh, I so empathize <laughs> when I think about you know, whether it's my first memory of of having to try to influence people and how poorly I did that <laughs> or at, at work and to work in a leadership role and the same thing, right? You know, and you're making those efforts and trying, but you got to learn somewhere, right? 
That's right. You got you got to start somewhere, and and you you just it's a lot of mistakes along the way, right, David? It's it, there's anybody who tells you they've had it figured out all the way along is you know not telling you the truth. And I've learned over the years that you know with three decades of leadership that a lot of leadership is recognizing when you make mistakes and being smart enough to learn from that, admit you're vulnerable, be admit you don't know everything, and learn and move forward. And boy, I learned that a lot early on in my career. I can tell you that. Uh, so much of the ethos of leadership without losing your soul. Absolutely. You know, you're, right. you're reminding me of a, of a, an old mentor of mine, uh, old being long ago mentor of mine. And he, he used to say, uh, you don't have to be good to start, but you do have to start to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. I'm going to use that. That's very good. Yeah. I'll, I'll quote you. And that's very good. David. It's very true. Incredibly true. Yeah, credit to Joe Saba for that one. And I'm sure that he borrowed, Joe was a borrower. I'm sure that he borrowed that from someone else. Ah, good, good. All right. So Scott, today we're talking about leading from the middle and you avoid, and you actually call it a, a negative, a pejorative term, the middle manager. Yeah. So let's, let's t start with some definitions. What are we talking about when you're talking about leading from the middle? Yeah, David, a lot of people hear the term middle manager and they might presume right out of the gate, well, okay, maybe that's not me. But the truth is, you know, by definition, a middle manager is anybody who has a boss and is a boss or aspires to be a boss of others, a manager of others someday pretty soon, and must lead from the messy middle to get their job done right, which means they have to influence up the organization to their boss or their boss's boss, down the organization to their employees, and across to peers over whom they probably have no formal authority. And, you know, what's interesting, David, is I think a lot of people, you know, that's an easy definition to embrace. That that basically means, unless if you're in the C-suite, you know, and even they report to the board, or if you're brand new, that's a whole lot of us that lie in the middle. And what I've found, David, is that a lot of people are very hesitant to embrace the term middle manager because of what pop culture has done to the term. You got shows like the Office, uh, you know, for those of you that have seen that show before with Michael Scott, just brutalizing the middle manager. And you got movies like Office Space, cartoons like Dilbert. And somewhere along the line, middle manager kind of lost its, you know, gestalt of being a good thing, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying on that, right? It's become a punchline. It's become a, it's become a punchline. But the truth is, the middle manager is, is many of us. And I've found, David, that what's really interesting in our research is that there is definitely a unique dynamic to having to lead up, down, and across the organization. It's like no other dynamic in corporate America or small company America, for that matter. Uh, and that's why you know I, I couldn't wait to dive into researching and writing Leading from the Middle. Well, let's start with that passion because you are passionate about this subject. I am too. And it, it's one of the, the reasons I connect with you the way I do is I... I you, you have that passion to help people become that best version of themselves. It's something I very much empathize with, resonates. And when you think about the challenge, uh, challenges of leading from the middle, what, where does your compassion come? Where does the passion for this subject come up? Why, why do you care? Yeah, it's a, it's a terrific question. And I think it's because, you know, I had a great experience at uh, Procter & Gamble. I also worked for Citicorp. You know, I've had a, a long three-decade experience. But what I can tell you, David, is the middle managers are, they're really the backbone to the organization and they're under-recognized and overworked and their dynamic is such that it's so easy to get lost in the middle. I can't tell you how many people told me, 
you know, I feel stuck in the middle. When I would interview them, I feel stuck in the middle. But the truth is, you're not stuck in the middle. You have the opportunity to lead in every single direction. So for me, the passion, David, comes from opportunity still to be filled. Seeing people in the middle getting squished from all sides, and there's so many unique challenges to, to trying to lead from the middle. One that I have particular passion and empathy for that especially drew me to the topic was most people say, okay, well, leading from the middle is so difficult, really, because of how much work I have to do. Everybody gives me work I have to do. And that's 100% true. We've seen that over and over in our research. But what people don't know is the number one biggest cause of difficulty for people leading from the middle has to do with what uh, what's known as micro-switching. Neuroscientists call it micro-switching. It has to do with the number of hats we have to wear. This is actually far more exhausting. So if you think about it, David, you know, when you're in the middle, you have all kinds of hats you have to wear and you have to change your stances. One minute, you have to be deferential to your boss. The next minute, you have to be authoritative with your employees. The next minute, you have to be collaborative with your peers. And sometimes it happens all in the same meeting. You move from roles where you feel like a cog in the wheel to all of a sudden you feel like you have tremendous autonomy. You feel like you're making tons of decisions. Then you realize they're not ones that really matter as much. So it's this identity problem that we have in the middle that we we, we get exhausted from micro switching. We wonder what is our real role? Seeing that over and over and over again drew me to these poor people in the middle that just needed some help for figuring out how to, how to navigate that complex hierarchy. Uh, I love that energy and passion, the way you articulate. I hope you can hear this coming through voice <laughs> because it's authentic. You know, one of the things that you do as you lead off in the book, talking about this tension is you you share the the Lego directives that were <laughs> hanging on the wall of middle managers at Lego. And I just love these. I just wanted to read off a few of these. But so these were actually on managers walls at Lego, right? That's, that's right. All right. So here we go. Things like be a visionary and keep your feet on the ground. <laughs> Try to win consensus and be decisive. Be sure of yourself and be humble. One of our favorites, confident humility here at Let's Grow Leaders. Yeah. Trust your staff and keep an eye on them. <laughs> Do a good job of planning your time and be flexible with your schedule. You know, So these kinds of tensions and seeming contradictions are where people who are leading from the middle live. Yeah, that's right. You know, conflict is another thing Almost by day, it makes sense, David, right? When you're at the intersection of the horizontal and vertical information and activity flow in a company, it makes sense you're going to be in the middle of conflict. You know, it makes sense that you, your boss hassles you, your employees resist you, your peers won't cooperate, <laughs> you have conflicting agendas, conflicts of interest, interpersonal conflict, you're inundated with busy work from processes and systems, and it just requires kind of you know, stepping back and, and knowing the right approach to take to be able to handle all of that, all of that conflict. And most folks underestimate the dynamic of how difficult it is to manage all that conflict. Absolutely. I, I had a, uh, at one point in my career, I transitioned out of a uh, leading from the middle type of role, although I was a more senior leader in that organization. And I remember the CEO texting me about four months later, and uh, saying, hey, I had no idea because it was all filtering up. To, he, had, he, he hadn't known the amount of you know, the relational conflict and the, the dealing with people and, and helping all of that to happen or you know, smoothly and so forth. And it was, a, it was an affirmation of the work I did, but also you know, kind of funny. 
coming four months after the fact. <laughs> Isn't that always the way it works, right? We have, people always recognize our value when we've kind of unplugged from them. That's often the way it works. I'm not surprised yeah. to hear that story. So often. Well, and as a, hey, a reminder for us as leaders to make sure we're not falling into that same trap with our folks. So, okay, so we've got these challenges and, and these tensions and, and you, whether you're being, as you said, squished or pulled or, you know, sometimes it feels like both simultaneously. There is a no, this is, these are my words, maybe not necessarily yours, but there is a nobility to me in leading from the middle, middle uh, an opportunity, a unique way of leading that when you, boy, when you can get this, uh, when I think of some of my own career and leadership, some of my most fulfilling moments were in those kind of roles. So I talked to us a little bit about the opportunities that you see in these roles. Yeah, you know, one of the things that was really compelling in our research, David, we talked to well over now, we're still continuing the research well over, we have well over 3000 different sets of data that went into this. And we kept hearing themes, David, of people saying of the very best successful middle managers, talking to us about, you know, look, you can look at this as you're stuck in the middle. You can look at this as, you know, oh my gosh, I, my job is segmented into a hundred different little pieces that I can never all get my arms around, or you can step back and reframe it. And some of the best, most successful middle managers we talked to had powerful reframes. Like one, uh, I'll never forget a dude in upstate Minnesota said, Hey, look, my job, it's not segmented. It's a hundred jobs integrated into one. And it takes a special person to be able to do an integrated job like that. I value the variety and I know I'm awesome for being able to do it. I heard another one. This was so good. It made it directly into the book, David. I heard one and I, it was like a mic drop moment. This woman said to me, oh, no, 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 no. It's not a, it's not a lack of opportunity in the middle. It's not a, a burden. I look at my job in the middle as being someone who has to think like an engineer and feel like an artist. And I said, whoa, tell me more about that. She said, no, 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 that's your job in the middle. You have to be procedurally oriented, systems and processes. You have to move things forward, stay on time like an engineer. At the same time, you have to have the empathy for what happens to people above, around, and below you. And be the epicenter of empathy. Be that artist. I, that blew me away. Another one that I heard, I, I heard someone say that, look, I'm a lighthouse and a beacon here in the middle. My job is to signal threats and to signal and draw people towards opportunity. I, I see that as a powerful duality. The opportunity is endless in the middle. And what's really interesting, David, is even if you know that in your gut, that in the middle lies, that is the backbone of the organization. That's why I wrote this love letter to the middle manager, the book Leading from the Middle. Data supports it. You know, we one of the most powerful data points I came across was we have research that shows 25% of the variation of revenue in a company can be attributed to middle managers. That's three times more than those that are just in innovation roles where their only job is to add revenue to a company. We, we came across a, a Stanford study, it's a five-year-long study that showed just taking a, a, a poor middle manager and just upgrading them to just a mediocre middle manager was the productivity equivalent of adding an entire new person to the team. We came across data that showed that a good middle manager can reduce retention problems by 20% just on their own. On and on the data went. So the opportunity to lead up and down and across is incredible if you can stop and reframe and believe in the power that you have. And of course, if you can use all the tools that I provided, you know, what I spent so long 
research. Absolutely. Well, and listen, I, you know, if you're listening to this, these numbers shouldn't be that surprising because when you think about your role, if you are currently in a, a middle manager, you're leading from the middle type of situation, you are leveraged. You've got multiplying impact across the organization uh, both the people who end up reporting up into you, of course, but then also, as Scott was talking about earlier, your influence with peers and your influence up. And so that is a leveraged role that is special and different than the ones on either end of that. And and it's unique in the opportunity. I just love your approach. And, you know, so if you're, let me take a step back here. We're talking to Scott Motts, author of Leading from the Middle. And we've been following through without telling you, but we have been uh, following through some of the organization of the book. So talking about the unique challenges that uh, leaders from the middle face. And Scott was just walking us through some of the mindset shift that can help you before you dive into any of the tactics. And, you know, we like to get practical. We're going to do that before we do any of that. Those mindset shifts that Scott just shared, I really want to anchor in that, that there is such opportunity and that it really is a privilege to be able to do these things when we look at it that way. And like I said, I come with that from my own passion of having done it and um, and lived it. So it's not just a, hey, you middle manager, find some passion and, and dig in. You know, it's not that. It's there really, truly is that opportunity. Right on. Well said, David. Let's get practical. Let's start talking skill set. So you have a a number of roles that that you lay out. So after we've reframed and we're looking at the opportunity and so forth, okay, granted, now we need to get practical and dig into how do we do this? And I love the way that you identify some of these. We don't have time to go through all of them. And I've got some that I definitely want to tap into, but um, walk us through just at the high level, uh, kind of treetop level, a couple of these type of roles so we know what we're talking about, then we'll dig a little deeper. Yeah, for sure. What one of the roles that you have to play, you know, we talked before about the number of hats a middle manager has to has to play. The number one most important one, I just kept hearing it over and over and over. One of the first words I heard was the role of translator. And Karen had mentioned to me that you guys have also discovered the same thing in some of your work, which I'm not surprised to hear at all. And I just kept hearing this description of needing to take vision and strategies from upper managers and then translate what that means down to the troops to do it in a way where apropos to this podcast, you're not losing your soul. So if there are parts of it that you don't agree with, you can express and frame that properly, but you're translating what it means for those, for those things up on top down into a way that is practical, that people can consume. And most importantly, they know how it affects their job day to day. I can't tell you, David, how many times I've been in the corporate world and you'd hear a vision and a goal and you'd be like, okay, that's nice. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with that, how my job changes, how I should show up, how I'm going to be measured. Critical role in the middle is to translate things from on top and flow them on through. I, I assume that's consistent, it sounds like, with your experience, right? hundred yeah. percent, absolutely. And so, you know, and a couple of things I want to pull out there. So when you're talking about that translator role, so taking high-level strategy and concepts and direction and and what you're saying is making it practical for your people on the ground, what does that look like behaviorally? And so we we talk a lot about that. Mind the MIT, what are the what are the most important things going on here? What are the not just the goals, but what is that? practically look like if i were to shoot a video of myself doing it what would i describe in that video right so we got to do that but there is 
in order to do that, sometimes we've really got to be an advocate for our folks yeah, that's right. in, in this role because the people who are outlining the strategy may not know what it looks like practically. So is that part of this translator role or is that, is it a, does that encompass another role? How would you talk about that? Yeah, I also, um, I think that's also part of the syn syn synthesizer role that you also have to play, uh, which is simply your job isn't to just take things and then spew them out verbatim down through. You have to synthesize what has been given to you, process it, put it into, um, you know, I think about it as like a microprocessor term. You have to recompute and share it in a way that makes sense for everybody below you. And yes, like you said, David, sometimes that's going to be things that you don't necessarily agree with. And you have to know how to be able to push back and make sure, okay, ideally you're involved in setting the vision with upper management, which by the way, is another role uh, that I'll talk in a second, where you're, you're influencing the strategy before you even get started so that you know when you synthesize it and share it on down, you're 100% aligned. But yeah, you're right. Sometimes that's what happens in reality. You may not agree with the vision and you have to know where to draw the lines between, okay, I got to toe the corporate line and I have to put my own spin and perspective on how this is really going to play out. Difficult to do, but it can be done. Absolutely. I, I want to dive into that one here in a little bit. Uh, so you were saying you wanted to go into a little bit deeper of like how you get involved and how you're, you're uh, incorporating your, your perspective into the vision setting and so forth. So let's, let's camp out there for a moment. Yeah, you, you bet. That involves the role of strategist that I talk about in leading from the middle. And what's interesting, David, is sometimes, uh, you know, we had a chance to do a lot of dichotomy in our research and look at middle managers that were considered successful by the organization and, and uh, you know, kind of clusters of middle managers that were considered not as successful or, or average at best. And one of the things that we saw amongst the ones that weren't considered as high performers by their bosses was this belief that strategy was up to somebody else that 100% my job in the middle is to translate, synthesize, produce, and have everybody. And what people, what they don't understand is actually the people most able and equipped to develop strategies are the ones that sit in the middle because they're the closest to the, the action. They have great access to people who are truly on the front line, or maybe they're on the front line themselves. They have access to the people above them and how they think and how they shape and what the company needs broadly. They have access to multifunctionals that have their own agendas. So the role of strategists is maybe the most important of all. I, I list 21 roles, like a 21-gun salute in the book, 21 roles that everyone can play. I debated on whether or not to list strategists first because so many middle managers forget it's still up to them to create as many strategies as they can. At one point in data, and I'll let you dive in, Dave, we saw that um, – 80% of strategies that upper management come up with, 80% of them tend to fail, especially when it has to do with change. Middle managers, when they come up with change initiatives, have a 70% success rate. What does that tell you? Absolutely. Boy, you are just setting off so many uh, <laughs> neurons are firing and bringing me back to my senior executive roles, where now I'm leading the group of middle managers. And some of the conversations and some of the the, the change initiatives and uh, and those who embraced it and said, okay, I see what you're trying to do there. Let me share a piece. There's some things you need to know. <laughs> That's right. They, they were right. That's then right. I then I remember one individual in particular who was very much an abdicator. He did not want to do the the strategist piece, 
uh, he he wanted to say this isn't fair. I don't like this and whatnot. And you know, I said, hey, you've got a point. The thing is, that's the best process any of us have been able to come up <laughs> yes. with. Yes. So I am all ears and I'm looking for something better. The whole team's looking for something better. What do you have? And he just didn't want to go there. And the and in terms of career success, all the others that did, A, their teams enjoyed a, a better work environment, but B, their careers benefited as well because they were learning and growing. So the opportunities are there if we're cognizant of them, if we're thinking about them, if we're paying attention and and realizing you really do have such vital input to contribute from a strategy perspective. And and if you have and carve out capacity for it, right, David? I, I can't tell you how many times, just in, forget the research, just in my own personal experience, how many times I've heard from middle managers that reported to me, you know what, I don't have time for strategy. I, I, I have to execute this, I have to do that. And, and what they don't realize is how much control you get over your personal schedule, your productivity, when you're the ones creating the strategy, because you're spending less time, guess what? Undoing strategies that are never going to work right. <laughs> or right. following through things that, that don't fit with the way things are going to produce the best outcome. So yeah, tremendous opportunity to be a strategist for middle managers. Part of the, the shift that has to happen, I think, because I'm not without sympathy for someone saying I've got so many things. Right, right. And there is an every leader, as you as your scope and level of responsibility changes, you have to find this shift. And some people don't get there ever. Some people wait till they're in a C-suite role and are getting pulled. But it's that shift from, from having to be the doer to the insurer and the strategist. And, you know, and, and it's not a, you're this, and then the next day you're this. It's not a, just a hard, fast line. There's a, it's a continuum of, of color or gray or what have you. And I had uh, one executive coach in my career one time described it as uh, I've got a foot on the dock, I've got a foot on the boat, and the boat is floating away and I'm about to get wet. <laughs> that's that's right. I, another metaphor I like to use is you, you know those bendy buses, David. Have you ever seen? There's two parts. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a big plat. That's the middle of a manager. You're the bendy part in the middle. You have to keep the front of the bus aligned and not have the back end swerving out of control. That's the job of a middle manager. And well, man, is it an important one? So let's get practical on this yeah. topic because I know everybody can empathize with this. So I, they're like, all right, Scott, David, I hear you guys. I, I, you know, I do need to be contributing at the strategy level strategically. And I don't feel like I have time. And yeah, maybe I'm doing too much. Like, how do I start to make that shift for myself? And create time to do that? Any re rec practical recommendations that uh, either from folks that were doing it well in your research or your own experience? From, what, uh, from both. I, what I can say is start by amazing things happen, to, no matter what industry you're in, when you spend more time and prioritize spending more time with your customer or your consumer, whatever the nature of the business is. And here's what happens. And I see this all the time and I saw it all the time in my personal life. You spend more time understanding your customers' needs. You're closer to the ground. You start to see you can't help but want to develop strategies because now you're in the know. You have the frontline understanding. You spend more time with consumers, the people who ultimately consume your services or your products. You start to understand there is opportunity here. From opportunity comes strategy. Strategy is a choice. You now feel compelled. I We have to make this choice as a business, I can smell the need and the opportunity. And what happens in that moment, David, is a lot of the other stuff you thought was priority magically gets moved to the side 
because of the size of the opportunity that you now smell having spent more time with customers and consumers. You can also do the same thing by spending more time with the third C, competition. Studying what their pluses and minuses are, where their weaknesses are, from that deep understanding comes opportunity. And again, from opportunity comes strategy. Strategy is a choice. You choose to spend time on that rather than other things. It's a very organic, natural way to do it that kind of takes care of itself. Is that, have you experienced that in your career? Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it, it just it clarifies everything. It puts everything into perspective. You know, if you, if, you know, if you like during the pandemic, if you're only staying in two rooms in your house for eight months, like that becomes your entire reality. And you, <laughs> you, you, you micro intensely focus on that spot on the wall and, you know, walk outside, you, the, you forget about the spot entirely. Cause you're looking at, Oh, there's all this stuff. So let's, let's just, I want to encapsulate what Scott just said, cause this is so important. So he said, if he could say that one of these roles is the most important, it's the role of strategist. And in order to become an effective strategist, the number one thing you can do is to spend time with your consumer, your customer, or the competition, or all three. That's right. And, in ter- and that includes if you're in a more of a support type of role, it's a, uh, your internal customer, right? So, or maybe both, right? So you've got, and, and in terms of the competition, you have competition. There's always an outsourced option for whatever it is you're doing. So even if that's your situation, spend time with your your customer your consumer your competition and I, I mean i don't i don't want to go too far out on a limb here but if it's the number one role and that's the number one thing you can do in that role then i think we just had a really important practical takeaway for everybody listening <laughs> i i think so and in case if people follow through to okay scott but now i don't have time to spend with a consumer the competition because what i can tell you is i promise you no boss will ever get mad at you for spending more time doing any one of those things. I can promise you that. Because it's it's going to directly the bottom line of one of the things that they care most about, right? That's right. All right, so let me uh, pull out one more of these. Uh, Sense maker, you had the the role of sense maker. What's that one all about? I love this one. Yeah, this is where a lot of times when you're in the middle, what can happen is things that come down from on top, whether it's a vision or a policy or a major competitive move that throws you into who knows what, or a a reorganization or layoffs, guess what happens? We are happiest and most motivated in, in our work when we can make sense of the world around us, when it has meaning. When upper management and the environment create conditions where it feels meaningless or we don't understand what's going on, we lose our sense of what's important, what's happening, and most important, we lose our sense of certainty. Once employees have uncertainty in their lives, David, oh man, that is bad news because what happens in the, in the face of uncertainty? We try to fill the gaps with what? Assumptions. They're most often incorrect and unhelpful. It is fascinating it's how happened. we yes. do that. We like fill in the blanks with the, the most pathological explanations possible. <laughs> and we all do it. Like it's a, a human thing. It's human nature. And what happens in that quiet moments, you know, <clears throat> when, when you assume too much, you start to spiral down. Productivity sinks, happiness sinks, just engagement sinks. So in the middle, the role of sense making is so important because Now you play the role of sharing with everybody around you. Okay, and I'm making this up. This is why this reorganization is happening. We're not evil. They're not looking to kill jobs. Or this is why 
our market share has dropped three points and we're making these cuts because this is what we have to do. You're that you're that savvy person in the middle that can help make sense of the world so people can stay focused. Critical role for middle managers. Absolutely. Connecting that the uh, what's going on to why it's happening. And you know, and this is where the roles start to overlap because uh, right. I don't know how this comes out in your research, but for me, it was the the sense of okay, as I start to understand the strategic opportunity or challenge that's being faced, uh, whether it's because I've been spending time with the customer, the consumer, right? The competition, understanding that. So this is where they, the roles start to overlap and that, and work together it is, you know, so, okay, I become aware of the strategic opportunities and challenges as I'm acting in the role of strategist. Well, now as sense maker, I start to connect the what to the why, for my people, but now there's an opportunity to ask them, hey, faced with this challenge, faced with this opportunity, what are your thoughts? How do you see it? What are, what's happening with the consumer or, or our internal customer that you're seeing? And so you're starting to be able to bring in translation. You didn't just translate down, now you're translating back up. And, and so that's where these start to play together. That's right. That's right. And yeah, and many of the roles start to, to bridge. And so no one, you know, if you're reading leading from the middle and you see, wow, 21 different roles I have to play. That's, it's not like it's 21 swim lanes you have to be an expert at. You're exactly right. They start to morph and blend. And oftentimes you're playing three roles at once in one meeting and it becomes natural once you build the skill sets that I teach in leading from the middle. Excellent. So we have just touched on, like you said, 21 roles that Scott has for you here that and every one of them valuable and necessary. Um, in addition to those roles, in terms of the skill set, there are also some critical functions that you have if you're going to be an effective person leading from the middle uh, in terms of not just the people who report to you, but your peers. And, right. and this is one of those topics that so many people forget about. And I know Karen is a huge fan of uh, it's what well, she considers it one of her most important leadership lessons in her career, but influencing peers who you don't have authority over. This is a critical leadership skill for people who are going to be effective in organizations. What do you find in the research there? One of the most powerful things you can do, David, and I go really deep on this because Karen's instincts, your instincts are exactly right. It's the most difficult thing and it also returns the highest reward for the least amount of effort because peers aren't expecting unexpected investments in them. One of the most powerful things we saw, uh, I've been practicing this for years, we did uh, numerous tests on it. The best piece of advice, practical advice I can give your listeners is to practice the golden rule of influence. And this applies to peers. Now I'm gonna do a little test with you, David, and it'll, it'll illustrate this. So David, I want you to think for a second, Think of somebody in your corporate career when you're in that mode that you didn't report to them, him or her, but they had a tremendous influence on you. Got it. Okay. That person visualized. I'll bet the odds are they did one of four things. They were able to show you that they care, they listen, they gave you something, they taught you something. <laughs> This I bet all four. <laughs> shout out to, to Kevin. You know who you are, Kevin, if you're listening, but all four. Absolutely. All four. And that's what we hear and saw in our research that the most effect, single, single thing I could, the single best thing is if you care, listen, give and teach your peers, 
the rule of reciprocity kicks in where they feel compelled that, wow, this is a person who's bringing value to my life, who's in line with my personal mission. It sounds like it's in line with yours of helping me to become a better version of myself. Think of how many of your peers in your corporate career actually took the time to do that. Probably not many. The ones that did, you don't forget. You never forget. I still have one uh, peer that I, I took the time to engage in the golden rule of influence with her. David, that was 15 years ago. And she still writes me letters to talk about the impact that I, that I had on her. And all I did was apply some of what I think are basic human principles and empathy of caring for another human being. And I love, you know, I love that you should, all I did was be a decent human being. <laughs> it really kind of, it kind of boils down to that, doesn't it? Oftentimes. But it's funny how, you know, you know, when we talk about human centered leadership or leadership without losing your soul, it's like, that's how I think about it without sacrificing your humanity. So you're bringing your full humanity, looking at your peers as human beings and how you can give to them at a human level, not manipulatively, not trying to get something, but just building the relationship and extending value to them. The reality is that is going to pay dividends and the relationships and the influence and the ability to work together. Doesn't mean you're always going to get along or agree, but you'll at least have a mutual relationship and they'll know that you care about them as a human being. That's, that's right. And it's especially powerful when you couple that with a higher order tip. Uh, do, I, do I have time to give one more tip, Dave? Is that okay? Of course. Yeah, yeah. It really works well when you couple it with what I call the three zones test. And this is, again, it's, it's powerful for everybody, but especially for influencing peers over whom you have no formal authority. The three zones test is a, is a way in which you set goals. And it's very simple. You run a filter. Before you share a goal with everybody, you just ask yourself, will it pass the three zones test? Will it pass? Will they look at it and you know, consider the comfort zone, the danger zone, and the twilight zone? I'll explain all three. Will that goal, does it take them out of their comfort zone so that it's something that's going to require real effort to rally around teamwork across peers. Is it not so ridiculous of a goal though, that it pushes them into the danger zone, which is okay. Yeah, we can accomplish this as a team. I'll never see my family. Uh, I'll have to take so many personal risks in my career that I don't think it's going to be worth it. You don't want the goals to be so aggressive that they hit the danger zone. And sometimes that happens when we set, ridiculous numbers. And our thought is, yeah, but if they just hit half of that numerical goal, we'll be fine. But you can push people into danger zone of doing unethical things to reach that numerical goal. You don't want that to happen. So comfort zone, danger zone, then the most important one, the twilight zone. This is a reference to an old American TV show. I apologize. You may have international audience and not everyone's going to know. It's a, it's an old TV show basically uh, came out in the United States. And it's just saying you should be able to look back on your, your peers should be able to look back on their career and say, when they're in the twilight of their career at the end of it, will they remember that goal you set and achieving it with fondness? Will it have nurtured their soul? Will they say, man, when I was on Scott's team, he pushed me out of my comfort zone, never into the danger zone. And boy, that goal we achieved meant something to me. And I remember it 15 years later in the twilight of my career, comfort zone, danger zone, twilight zone. You set those kind of goals at the high end, and then you couple that with the golden rule of influence, you'll have peers eating out of your hands. <laughs> what a beautiful, beautiful filter that we can use there. That is fantastic. I hadn't heard that one, Scott. 
uh, until I saw the book, obviously, but the, you're, you've got so much value there to think through the goals that you're setting and the ways that you're asking people to collaborate. Oh man, that's powerful. I'm going to remember that one. That's a, that's, I have these moments sometimes in the show where I get, okay, I got to take away from myself and <laughs> I just love that one. It's bigger than we are. That's out of the comfort zone. It's bigger than I am. And that's the ennobling part, right? And I'm going to look back with fondness and go, yeah, Scott helped me do something bigger than myself, but I'd never had to sacrifice something I truly cared about and compromise a value in order to get there. Right. And that is beautiful. All right, so we have been talking with Scott Motz, M-A-U-T-Z. He's the author of Leading from the Middle. And uh, Scott, you have so much more in this book than we have. I mean, we've been going a while and we have still, there is so much more we could talk about. Uh, the last one I think I'm, I'm gonna ask you to just touch on briefly is we've talked about leading our teams we've, and the different roles we play there. We've talked about some of the strategy role that we've done that and we talked about peers but we haven't talked much about leading our boss and this is one of those roles that people in the middle when they do it well have a tremendous positive impact both on their boss and on the organization and i think maybe the most important place to start and people are always shocked by this david but and it sounds so obvious that i hesitate to share it but then i'm going to puncture a hole in it it is so important to understand what your boss is asking of you, what is expected from you. And in case you have that draws the duh response, let me, let me counter with this. We did research amongst 300 pairs of, and we're, we're well above that now, 300 pairs of boss and subordinates. The sole goal of the research, David, was we interviewed them ahead of time, the boss and the subordinate, and asked them, are you clear on what's expected of each other? Oh, yeah, 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 you know, 98% of the time. Yeah, 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 we got it. Let's get into the interview. Right after we conducted the interviews, David, we found that the latest number now is 84% of those boss subordinate pairs had material breaches in basic understanding of basic expectations of what they wanted from each other. You are likely not as clear as you think you are on what's expected of you and what people are, or, you know, what uh, you're expecting from your own boss. Expectations can be a disaster. Gallup has confirmed this. They have a, a major study out that shows 45% of global workers aren't sure at all what's expected of them. So you have to start by getting super clear on that. Here's a simple tool and a way to do it. I want your listeners to visualize a simple chart. It has three columns. In the left-hand side are business metrics that are important to you, like leadership or risk-taking or priority setting. The next column is the word good. The next column is the word great. This is what I call the good to great grid, where you sit down and you get on paper, you define the difference between good and great in that business performance metric. So for example, in the case of a priority setting, we did an example once where we said, okay, good, you know, our team said good priority setting is trash compactor management. You just take, you think of your work like a cube of trash and you squish it down into a smaller cube. That's pretty good. Some people can't say no. We said great priority setting is accordion management. Accordion is a musical instrument that expands and contracts. What if you thought of your workload like that? Expanding and contracting at times, not always expanding so you don't burn anybody out. Contracting at times to replace, you know, take crappy work off, low value work. In and out. Whether or not you agree with those definitions doesn't matter. The power comes in choosing to sit down with your boss and define the difference between good and great. And what happens is it forces 
clarity of thought. The number one reason we're not clear in expectations with our boss is because our boss uses lazy language. They'll give general, okay, this is what I want you to do. They'll assume everyone knows exactly what they're talking about, but they have something different in mind. When you conduct this exercise, you get very clear on what good and great is, and that tension leads to tremendous productivity and clarity. Fantastic. Uh, so if you if while Scott was talking, I apologize if uh, you're listening and you heard like a thump because it was my head nodding so hard that I might have <laughs> hit the microphone. Uh, yeah, I mean, we all of the, the research that your experience is consistent with what we have seen, that lack of clarity, number one issue, <laughs> easily the number one issue that causes all of the challenges that we can encounter. So what Scott just shared with you, I'd love that the good to great grid. That's a form of check for understanding for our, our, our listeners. And, but you're doing an in-depth version of it where you're getting clear about, all right, the different levels. And I just, there, that's brilliant. And then, you know, even extending that, okay, where is great most important? If I can only be great in two or three of that's these right. areas, which are the ones I gotta nail? And where is good sufficient? And, that's right. you know, and getting that kind of clarity too, there's so many different applications for this tool. What a powerful, powerful technique. Okay, so Scott, earlier you mentioned, and this is the last last content I think we're gonna have time for today, talking about managing up, leading your boss. Uh, specifically now, how do we deal with the situation where maybe your boss doesn't appear to be as human-centered as perhaps you would like, or the strategy doesn't feel right, or, you know, and we're not in that zone of like, I gotta quit because this is just wrong. You know, we're not there but we're in that area of, I'm not feeling comfortable. One of the most important things we can start with, David, is, is you have to understand the nature of the boss-subordinate relationship, which is, it is interdependence between two imperfect human beings. Once you start with that, so much good flows from that, David, because a lot of the times what happens is, we start to summarize our boss in our own mind. We start to make assumptions. We start to label and categorize them. Well, my boss, I'm making this up, David. They never listen. They're selfish. They have their own orientation. It's all about that. Once you start to apply labels and you don't forgive bosses for their shortfalls, everything spirals out of control. But if you start with, it is truly interdependent, which is, even if you don't want to admit it, even if you think your boss is a moron, I promise you, you need your boss. And I promise you, your boss needs you. If you start with that assumption and then add on, and we're all fallible human beings, that can go a long way towards repairing a relationship. And then, of course, there's lots of other small things that you can do. But I think it starts with that. Does that make sense, David? Like at the core? Well, it, it sure does. And back to, you know, without sacrificing your humanity, without losing your soul, like to extend that allow your boss to be a human being yes. is, you know, back to our confident humility, right? It, and that's grounded. Where does that come from? Well, it's recognizing that you're imperfect too. And, and, and I, I say this, I have been that person. I've been that frustrated leader looking up going, well, what's wrong with them and, and doing the labeling and all the rest. I have been that guy. I, I understand I. exactly what you're saying and that I can't emphasize that wisdom enough to, in your own mind, it's a conversation with yourself. It to allow it, that. That's right. And it changes. 
the conversation with yourself. Because if you start from, I'm going to diffuse my temper, give them some space and chance to be human, the nature of the conversation you have with yourself opens up new opportunities and possibilities. And people a lot of times don't want to hear that, David. They want to hear, no, 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 no. My boss is a jerk. He'll never change. That's the label. Let's come, now tell me what to do. And I'm sorry, I'm going to challenge even that label for even the worst of bosses. Yep. It's not helpful. It doesn't help. I mean, even if they are, in quotes, a jerk, if that's where you're camped out, you're stuck. Yeah. That's and that's right. something that you have control over that you can do something about. All right. Oh, my goodness. Scott, thank you so much. This has been such a rich conversation. So many practical tips. I, you know, so we started with the passion and compassion for people who are leading from the middle and the opportunities and the roles that, that we can practically play to do that. Well, there's so much more in leading from the middle. I can't encourage you enough to get this book, to read it. If you're in one of those roles now, particularly if you're looking to get into one of those roles, you can start practicing these things right now. So Scott, tell us, where can we find you? Where can we find the book? Uh, you can find me at scottmouts.com, uh, S-C-O-T-T-M-A-U-T-Z.com. And David, I have it set up so that if uh, your listeners go to scottmouts.com forward slash free tools, or no space in between free and tools, scottmouts.com forward slash free tools, they'll get a 30-page companion workbook that goes along with uh, leading from the middle, as well as access to my complete leadership and self-leadership toolkit so that I can help them lead without losing their soul. <laughs> Fantastic. And we will put all of the links for that in the show notes at leadershipwithoutlosingyoursoul.com uh, uh, on this episode. So, you know, it, pause right now because, you know, we're just going to like wrap up and say goodbye, but pause right now, go get your book, go get your free 30 page toolkit and commit to working through these tools. They are that practical, that helpful. Uh, Scott, I so appreciate you taking the time today. You have been so generous with both your time and and all the wisdom and uh, and tips that you've shared with our audience. So just uh, really appreciate you helping us lead without losing our soul. Thanks, David. And thanks for what you do. We need more of leaders that don't lose their soul. So thank you so much. All right. Well, that is it for today. Got to say goodbye to Scott, although we could keep talking forever. So if you're listening, get the book, get your companion guide, start doing the work, pick one role. And maybe it's what we talked about earlier to just start spending time with your customer or your consumer or maybe the competition. If you need a place to start, there's so many different options. Take the opportunity to lead from the middle and you're on the way to being the leader you'd want your boss to be. Till next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.